Good morning. Thank you for joining us at River Oaks today. We are really, really glad to have you here. And I would like to take just a moment now to recognize the veterans among us on this Veterans Day weekend. If you are a veteran, if you've served in any branch of our country's military service, would you please stand so we could thank you and recognize you for your service? Would veterans please stand, should we? Thank you so very much for your service. Today is also a Sunday when churches are asked to especially pray for the persecuted church around the world. Many places in our world today, Christians are being persecuted for their faith. One particular pastor from our area, Andrew Brunson, from a church of which we are part, the EPC in uh, Montreat, North Carolina, being his home church, is in prison at this time in Turkey. And so I'd like to take just a moment to pray for the persecuted Christians around the world, Pastor Andrew Brunson, but also to pray for our own nation. Many of us still have uh, heavy on our hearts the horrific shooting last week in Texas. And so let's pray for our own nation as well. You will see um, some verses of scripture from Psalm 46 on the screen as we're praying, because I think often it's very helpful to use scripture when we pray, to pray scripture back to the Lord. So would you join me now as we pray? Father, as your body, as your people, we gather this morning in the name of Jesus. We pray for those members of your body who are in very difficult places today, places where they often suffer persecution because of their faith in you. Would you strengthen them? Would you pour your spirit out on them? Would you give them comfort and renewal and encouragement? We particularly pray for Pastor Andrew Brunson. Lord, would you so work things that soon he would be released and able to return to his wife Noreen and their family. We pray you sustain him today, that you fill him with the Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray for our own nation. Lord, we are deeply troubled by what happened last week in Texas, and we pray for an outpouring of your Spirit on the United States of America. Because you, Lord, are our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Thank you that we can know that you, Lord, the Lord of hosts, are with us. That you, Lord, the God of Jacob, are our fortress. We pray for mercy in our nation, that you would work in the United States to turn our hearts toward you, that you would pour out your spirit upon your people, that you would enable us to repent where we need to repent, to seek you as we need to seek you, and to receive the empowering of your spirit to walk faithfully before you. Father, we pray your words from Psalm 46. When you said, be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Lord, would you be exalted in the United States of America at this time? Thank you for the assurance that the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. 
Now guide us as we look to your word this morning, Lord. Teach us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, thank you for being here this morning. We are continuing our study of the themes of the Apostles' Creed. Last week, we looked at the phrase that says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. There are perhaps more questions about those two phrases than any others in the creed. The phrase we'll look at today seems really straightforward. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. But it's critically important to understand how that forgiveness of sins has come about. And we're going to look this morning at what we often call the gospel. And we're going to look at a passage of scripture. Stephanie Maxwell read it on the stage just a moment ago from Romans chapter 3, verses 19 to 26. And I would say that that passage is perhaps the most concise, comprehensive explanation of the gospel from the law of God to the grace of God that is found anywhere in the Bible. And that's why I would urge you to memorize Romans 3, 19 through 26. We're going to look at it closely this morning. And as we do, we begin by reading the Apostle Paul talking about the law of God. And he teaches us first that the law of God has a great and an important purpose. And that is that it shows us our sin. It shows us our need for God. The apostle wrote, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. There's not a human being on earth that can be acceptable to God by perfectly keeping his law. It just can't be done. Paul says, rather, through the law comes knowledge of sin. Later to the Romans, he would write these words. If, I, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. God's law, and in this context he's certainly speaking of the Ten Commandments since he references one of those, is like a great big searchlight that shows us our sin and our need before God. When we read the first of the Ten Commandments, you will... You're to have no other gods before me. When I hear those words and see those words, it exposes the reality of my heart that often I put other things before God. Jesus summarized the law when he said, the first and greatest commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. When I hear those commands of Jesus, they make me aware that I have not fully loved God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I've certainly not always loved my neighbor as myself. In fact, I usually think of myself rather than my neighbor. The law shows us our need. It shows us our sin like a great big searchlight. It exposes our need for God's mercy. Because through the law, we see ourselves in the light of God's perfection. And so Paul says, we've all sinned and we fall short of the glory of God. I've had the opportunity over the years to talk to quite a few people about their faith, their personal walk relationship with God. And sometimes I've asked people this question. 
Suppose you stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven? What do you think you'd say? A typical answer from someone outside of the church goes kind of like this. Well, I'd tell God I'm basically a good person. Um, I, I don't hurt people. I don't believe in hurting people. I'm honest. Uh, I think I'm a person of integrity. Maybe don't go to church quite as much as I should, but I try to help people in need. I'm ba basically, basically, I'm a good person. And we have a tendency as human beings to evaluate ourselves on the basis of comparison with other people. And we, when we compare ourselves to those we read about in media or in the news, we, we think we measure up pretty well. But it's important to note that this verse does not say, for many sin and fall below the midpoint of human behavior. We're not judged on the basis of comparison with other people. We're being evaluated in light of the glory of God. In the pages of the Old Testament, one of the greatest prophets was the prophet Isaiah. We could certainly say that in his time, in his culture, in his day, he was one of the most, maybe the most, holy man in his entire culture. So certainly by comparison with others, he was among the best. In Isaiah chapter 6, he records an experience, though, in which he got just a glimpse of the glory and holiness of Almighty God. And when we read that passage, we find him saying, when he gets a glimpse of the holiness of God, he falls on his face and he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. This holy man, relatively speaking, when he got a glimpse of the holiness and glory of God, he says, I'm undone. The law enables us to see ourselves in the light of God's perfection. It shows us our need, and the law then prepares us for the gospel. The law leads us to something. Paul the Apostle called it a schoolmaster or a school teacher or a tutor to bring us to Christ. And that is what the law serves to do. The law shows us our need. The gospel then shows us God's grace for us in Christ Jesus. Now, if Romans 3, 19 to 26 is the most comprehensive, concise explanation of the gospel from law to grace that we have, the verses you see on the screen not right now are the very heart of this passage. These two and a half verses, verses 23 to the first part of 25, they are super, super important to know and understand. Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now those are not easy verses to understand, but some of the very most important verses in the Bible. So let me try to explain three of these key words, because they're not words we use every day. First of all, the word redemption. The word redemption, as it's used here, has to do with Jesus' work of buying back sinners out of our bondage to sin. 
in the days of the Apostle Paul in the Roman world, slavery was very common. Large percentage of the population were slaves. People, if they had debts they couldn't pay back, sometimes sold themselves into servitude for a period of time until their debt could be repaid. And so this word redemption has the idea, it carries this idea of buying back someone out of their indebtedness, out of their bondage, but it's applied to Jesus in his buying us out of our sin, the consequences of our sin and our bondage to it. Elsewhere in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul wrote, in him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So redemption comes to us because of the blood Jesus shed on the cross. A second key word to understand here is a word that's even less frequently used. I bet many of us have never used this word in conversation, and it's the word propitiation. Propitiation, in this passage in Romans, refers to the sacrifice of Jesus' blood for the removal of God's wrath toward his people. Some people don't like to talk about the wrath of God. Some people say, well, I don't like the God of the Old Testament because the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath. And they're not aware that the New Testament has plenty to say about the wrath of God as well. The fact is, I don't think we would want a God who did not have holy wrath toward evil, toward sin. The difference in God's wrath and our wrath is that God's wrath is not tainted by any human sin or any wrong judgment, or any evil prejudice. God's wrath is a holy thing. It's actually a beautiful thing. And what propitiation means is that God himself took responsibility for the removal of his holy wrath toward our sins by providing himself the propitiation, the just sacrifice for the removal of our sins through Christ. So that Jesus actually, in the words of the Apostle Paul, became the propitiation. As Romans 3.25 says, that through Christ, God, Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The Apostle John would later Write these words, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's incredibly important to understand what Jesus has done. And now we get to the third word, redemption propitiation. The third word in the passage we really need to understand is the word justified. To be justified simply means to be declared just, to be declared righteous by God on account of, God's, uh, on account of Christ's saving work. Justification is something God does. God the Father looks at your life when you have put your faith in Jesus and received his redeeming, 
propitiating work and He stamps just on your life. It's a declaration of God the Father about you because of what Christ has done. Paul the Apostle would write the words you see in chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Last month we celebrated the 500 year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation and the person whose name is most connected with that reforming of the church by protesting abuses in the church of his day. That person was Martin Luther. And if there's one phrase that perhaps more than any other is connected with his uh, teaching, it is justification by faith. That is, a person is declared just by God. A person is justified not by any religious work, but by faith in what Jesus did. His redemption. His propitiation. So Paul could say, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. It is so important to understand this word justified or justification that I want to set it beside another key word which it's critically to understand. And we need to understand the difference between the two because if you don't, you may go through life struggling to find assurance of salvation. And the other word is the word sanctification. Now, justification is being declared just by God. Sanctification, and this definition comes from a really great theologian, Wayne Grudem. Uh, he, he writes that sanctification is a progressive work of God. God and man, that is, it's a work in which God involves us that makes us more and more free from sin and more like Christ in our actual lives. Sanctification is related to the word saint we talked about last week. A set-apart person. It's related to the word sanctuary. A place that is set apart for the worship of God. And it's sanctification is God the Holy Spirit working in you and me throughout life to progressively set us apart from sin and conform us more to the likeness of Jesus. It may help to understand the distinction between justification and sanctification with this little chart on the screen. Justification is instantaneous. It is an instantaneous declaration, an act of God the Father, that because of what Jesus did in the shedding of his blood and your faith that has grasped and embraced what he did, you are made righteous in his eyes. Not without sin. Stumbling still, yes, but justified. Sanctification is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in us, with us, through us, as He changes us so that we grow to become more like Christ. Justification is all about our standing before God. Sanctification is all about our growth in God. Justification is when we're credited with the righteousness of Christ Sanctification is when we're being shaped 
into the likeness of Christ. Justification says it's done. It's done. Sanctification says it's being done by the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. It is really important to understand the difference, to have assurance in your walk with God. What often happens with sometimes a sincere Christian believer is that we look, we look inside ourselves and we see anxiety and doubt and fear. We find unclean thoughts and we look within ourselves and we say, I must not really be saved. I must not really be a Christian. For your assurance, don't look within yourself. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ. Consider Him. Look what He did. Having fully embraced His saving work, you can declare what the Apostle Paul did. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. And then in gratitude for that justification, move forward, compelled by love and gratitude to God in this progressive work by the Holy Spirit of sanctification. God takes our will as it's yielded to Him and shapes us and molds us into the likeness of Jesus because of our loving gratitude for what Christ has done. So I'd raise two questions this morning of personal application. I'd recommend you ask yourself this. First, have I been justified by faith so that I have peace with God? It's critically important. Secondly, How's the process of sanctification going in my life? Invite the Holy Spirit to help you with that. The Holy Spirit uses many things to sanctify us, to conform us to the likeness of Jesus. But two that are vitally important are one, Scripture, the Word of God. And two, prayer. And I'd like to take just a little time right now. You can think of this as kind of a, a lab for prayer. And take those two things, the scripture and prayer, and join them together. Because the Bible is the greatest prayer book that you will ever own. And one of the most helpful ways to learn to pray, and we all need help with that, even Jesus' disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. One of the best ways I know to learn to pray is by praying Scripture. Taking what you read in the Word of God, praying it back to God, personalizing it. And so here's what I'd like to do for exactly five minutes. In a few seconds, you're going to see on the screen some verses that have to do with justification. Read them, reflect upon them, pray them as appropriate for yourself. And in 60 seconds, we'll go to another set of verses that have to do with the process of sanctification, searching our hearts. And I, I just pray the Holy Spirit will take these five minutes and do a deeper work in us and in the process, 
teach us a little bit about how to use the Bible as a prayer book. How to pray scripture back to God. Let's begin now. Verses you see on the screen are from Romans 5, 1 and 2. Reflect on these and as appropriate, thank God for what he's done in your life. When you see the word we, you might insert the word I as appropriate. The verse being shown on the screen to the congregation is Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. ask God to search your life to reveal sin to then confess that sin and by faith receive his forgiveness his cleansing Psalm 139 verses 23 and 24 search me O God and know my heart try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. or wholehearted devotion. The phrase, unite my heart to fear your name, simply means give me an undivided heart, one wholly committed to you. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. These verses have to do with God's power to work within us. As you're reflecting upon them, consider personalizing them, inserting the word I or me for the word you. Hebrews chapter 13 verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in us which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.
on these last two verses. Give God praise and thanks that he is these things in your life. Psalm 28, verses 7 and 8. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exalts, and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. And now, Lord, we pray for an ongoing work of your Holy Spirit among us, individually and corporately, that you would teach us to pray, that you would work in us by your Spirit, that you would progressively conform us to the likeness of Jesus, that we would live as people who are justified and being sanctified by your great power. Work deeply among us, Holy Spirit, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.